Hey, listening audience, it's Jake Wiskirchen. I'm back with you on an episode of Listener Mail. And we're going to try to start squeezing these in maybe on Thursdays or Fridays as little bonus episodes in between the the regular weekly scheduled ones on Mondays. And uh, they're not going to be numbered. Uh, They're just going to be out there and they're going to have topics assigned to them. So this one um, obviously has uh, some uh, some questions about diagnosis, uh, one about licensing. And um, I'm going to briefly touch on anxiety because I'm going to tackle that in a different episode. But For now, all we're going to do is uh, take on a few questions here, and I'm going to try to do these a little bit more frequently. I know I've been promising that, but uh, life being what it is has gotten in the way a little bit, and I haven't been able to spend as much time on the podcast as I'd like, so hopefully this is the start of uh, turning that around. So I'll get right into it. Terry from Las Vegas asks about diagnosis. I don't know if Terry is a guy or a girl, so I'm not going to assume, but uh, he or she writes, Dear Jake, Love the podcast. I'm wondering if you can answer a question about why we have to have diagnosis at all or have to have a diagnosis at all. This just seems like something that prevents people from seeking help when they have to get labeled with a mental illness. And mental illness is in quotes for those of you who can't see it because you're not looking at my computer screen because this is an audio program, not a visual program. I really appreciate this question because it speaks to a lot of what I've been trying to rally against for so long, which is the stigma associated with our field. For those of you who may not know the definition of stigma, it's it's a negative connotation with something. So mental health, mental illness, mental wellness, anything with the mind and its struggles or healing has for many, 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 many years been looked upon as uh, kind of a dark, weird, uh, untouchable, often strange and uh, frowned upon industry, field, occupation, profession, what have you. And I think largely that stems from just not knowing what a mind is at all. I mean, we can't, we can't see it, we can't touch it, we can't measure it, we can't feel it, we can't quantify it. And so it leaves a lot of people in a Western society who are driven by certainty. It, may, it leaves us a little bit vulnerable and, and, and unsure. And so a lot of people just prefer to avoid it altogether. If we can't figure out what something is and we don't know how and we can't wrap our arms around it, we tend to banish it to the corner. And we've done that across human history with lots of things that we don't understand. And it's led to things like wars and, you know, civil riots and racism and uh, sexism and all sorts of isms that are not pleasant. But in this particular category of mental health, I think that the stigma comes from just simply not understanding what mental wellness is, what what it looks like to be unhealthy versus healthy, how does it heal? And, you know, it's if you ask a, six clinicians uh, a path to healing, you're going to get nine answers. So I think the whole confusion about it, the, the very mercurial nature of, of what the mind is, has pushed people away and it's created a stigma. So I want to start with that. First of all, you don't get labeled with a mental illness. And I want to put to bed the, the myth that once you get a diagnosis, that is somehow a reflection of your core character or identity. That's bogus. It's nonsensical. It, it, for me, it's a not even a starting uh, a starter for a question. It's a non-starter. You, think of mental wellness or mental health in the same realm as you would physical health or physical wellness. If you go to the doctor, the doctor diagnoses you with whatever you're ailing uh, with and then sends that claim on insurance. Uh, they do a bunch of treatments to you and hopefully you get better. When you're better and you're no longer symptomatic, 
you don't have that thing anymore that they sent off to bill insurance. That's the that's really the uh, one of only two reasons the diagnoses exist. One is for insurance reimbursement because insurance companies will pay to get their members healthy, and then they stop paying once they're healthy. So they want to know what's broken, and they want to know when it's fixed, and then they they stop covering your your treatments because you're healthy. There's no reason to keep paying for something to get treated when you don't have that thing anymore. The second reason that we have diagnoses is so clinicians can have common language one to the next among each other. So if I sort of look like, you know, look at something and it looks like depression based on a series of set criteria in what we call the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, then I can pass that diagnosis along to another clinician, say if the, the client moves or they get tired of me and they want to bring their paperwork with them and they go somewhere else. We can compare notes and go, okay, I, I reasonably know what depression looks like because uh, of these criteria laid out in front of me. So I prefer not to discuss diagnoses with my clients at all because I think that in our stigmatized field, we do tend to self-label. We, we don't know what it is, so therefore whatever it is that I'm struggling with tends to become mine, and, uh, and then it's a reflection of who I am as opposed to just simply this thing I'm struggling with. And I've mentioned this in different settings and different forums if you've ever uh, – interacted with me at all the difference between i am and i have is very very significant uh, i can have a broken arm and have it casted for several weeks and go through rehab and eventually get my strength back but i don't walk around going i am a broken arm that doesn't make any sense so similarly i wouldn't want to walk around going i am bipolar like like that's who you are that's how god made you to walk the earth like you you just have mood swings that are uncontrollable and you know life wrecking mania and depression that keeps you in bed crippled for days at a time that doesn't make any sense it's it's not harmonious with nature it's it's incongruous with the way that things work so i wouldn't want to walk around going i am anxiety or i am adhd or i am bipolar i am depression it's, it's that's that's not a definition of a of a human being so I can understand why people would be afraid of a diagnosis if society has told us all along that your diagnosis is tantamount to who you are, but I'm here to tell you that that's, that's nonsense, and I would encourage you not to do that. Instead, substitute language that says something like, I'm struggling with, or I'm battling, or I have, all in the context of eventually one day I won't have it anymore, because we should be diagnosing based on symptom presentation. And if there if there's no symptoms, then there's no diagnosis. If there's no diagnosis, there's no treatment plan, there's no goals, there's no objectives to the goals, and then you're living a healthy life. So our job is to, as clinicians, is to make sure that we're constantly checking in on whether or not you're continuing to struggle with that thing that you're struggling with. And if you're not, it's our job to tell you, hey, Looks like you you don't have anything left to to deal with here anymore. I think maybe you need to be discharged and go live life on your own terms. We really don't want to be keeping people in treatment ongoing in perpetuity because that's highly unethical. It creates a, a really poor dependence upon the clinician. Uh, it doesn't help the person launch, and it's just antithetical to the whole spirit of what we do, which is to help people help themselves so that they can live wholesome, full lives. I, I don't want to be an ongoing part of somebody's life that uh, it takes power away. It, that means that they're not they're not capable of helping themselves, which I just fundamentally find flawed in uh, in, in reason and rationale. So um, I went on a little bit of a soapbox there, and um, if the if my attitude strikes you as a little off-putting, I apologize. Uh, but I, I battle this on a, on a regular basis. People come in with um, you know, a self-diagnosis or a diagnosis that they've carried since childhood, and now they're in their 30s, and they go, 
yep, my, uh, you know, I had a psychiatrist diagnose me as X when I was six years old, and I guess that's how I'm always going to be. And I put my foot down, metaphorically speaking. Uh, I don't actually go stomping through my office. But I put my foot down and I say, no, this, that's not that's not a thing. We, we want to embrace the mind for all that it is. And if you're having a mental disorder, that's fine. You can have a physical disorder too. It doesn't mean that you as a person are, you know, forever going to be disordered but we want to acknowledge it and say this something's out of line here with the notion that you can get back into line because if you couldn't and all this stuff was permanent and all you could ever do is manage it my profession would die we wouldn't we wouldn't be treating anybody because nobody would ever be healed and that's that's charlatanism as it at its best you know hey come in here the the counselor the psychotherapist we're not actually going to heal you uh we're we're not going to we're not going to provide any any relief you know forever in your life uh you're just always going to be sick uh but pay me like no (laughs) no absolutely not i don't want to be a part of a system that does that i want to be a part of a system that inspires hope and uh and confidence and courage and encouragement and a belief that uh, all things can be healed with the, the right amount of insight and work ethic and, and commitment. So to answer Terry's question in short, I know I spent a long time on it, but to answer it in short, the reason we have a diagnosis is to bill insurance. You may uh, be paying out cash out of pocket uh, to a clinician who you just you know, have conversations with. Then you may not even have a diagnosis. But uh, for people who are really sensitive to that kind of thing, I just say, don't worry about what your diagnosis is. Uh, let's worry about getting you healthy on your terms. And when you are, then we're done with treatment. So please don't allow the idea of a diagnosis to prevent you from coming in and seeking help. That, that is absolutely the best way to run society right into the ground. Uh, we, we don't want people avoiding help simply because they think they're going to be labeled forever and ever. It's not cool. Um, the next question comes from an anonymous person from Seattle. That's cool. Seattle uh, writing in asking about licensing. Dear Jake, thanks for making this podcast for us. You have often referred to yourself as a licensed marriage and family therapist and a national certified counselor. First, what is the difference between a therapist and a counselor? And then in parentheses, or is there one if you can be both? And then what is the difference between a license and a certificate? And finally, a lot of questions in this one. What does one need? uh, Why does one need a license at all? It seems that lots of people give good advice without being licensed, such as relationship coaches, yoga instructors, teachers, case managers, bartenders, hairstylists, and even my golfing buddies and former college teammates. Looking at your bio on your website, you are president of the Nevada Licensing Board, so I figure you're the perfect one to ask about this. Thanks for thinking that I'm perfect in something. Um, <laughs> thanks for, th- for everything that you do. I always learn something new every time I listen. Well, that's nice. Thanks. All right, let's tackle these one at a time. So the difference between a therapist and a counselor is one of professional association. So in America, we have uh, two basic categories of mental health uh, counselors. One is the counselor and one is the therapist, and they get their identities professionally from two, well, three major associations. One is the American Counseling Association, Another is the National Board for Certified Counselors, and I'll get back to that in a moment. The third is the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. And the difference between the two traditionally, now I really want to stress traditionally. Traditionally, marriage and family therapists have contextualized their counseling, their therapy, in the context of a system. 
so they see many parts working uh, within the individual and the individual within those parts, and they see they th- they see things systemically. Counselors have treated individuals as individuals. A uh, person walks in the office, they have a stated problem, and we deal with that problem. So over time, however, the counseling field as a whole, from social workers to psychologists to alcohol and drug counselors to psychiatrists even coming out of medical school, uh, they all now are thinking systemically. Now, how they do it is a much, much, much longer conversation, but basically everybody thinks systemically. So the terms are more or less interchangeable. Um, there is a traditional mindset, um, and, and I'm being very generic here. I don't mean to ruffle any feathers or, or raise eyebrows, but generically speaking, social workers, because uh, you have clinical social workers who act as counselors and therapists also, social workers are trained in, through school to help people uh, gain resources. They see their, their most of their problems as a, as a lack of resources. Uh, counselors say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you uh, figure this thing out so that you can solve your own problems. And and family therapists say, I'm going to help you understand the dynamics in which you're living and operating so that you can better fit in with those things. So that's that's traditionally how, how the, the fields have, have viewed each other and viewed their clients. But that really isn't the case anymore. We, we all hybridize and overlap. So in Nevada, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to give resources to my client or I'm not going to try some individual modalities to, to help the person gain insight. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. I want to, I want to hybridize and I want to integrate all my theoretical concepts the best that I can. So most people will see that, uh, there are some long standing, uh, traditionalists, I think in, in all fields that, uh, think that their way works the best and that's fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not here to, to debate that or argue it. I'm just uh, pointing out the differences. So that's the difference. I am a national certified counselor through the National Board for Certified Counselors. That's NBCC. You go to nbcc.org and look at that. And uh, all that means is that I have a national board certification. I took a test of knowledge and I passed it. And every year I have to do continuing education to maintain that credential. And then in my state where I'm licensed, the licensed uh, uh, part allows me to bill insurance. Um, Almost every insurance company in America won't let you submit a claim for treatment unless you're in network with them. And in order to get in network, they need that seal of approval from the state government that says that they that you're minimally competent to practice and so that's what the licensing board does and you are correct i do sit as the president of my licensing board presently in nevada and uh that board is um is what verifies what quote-unquote minimum competence to practice looks like traditionally that is in the form of a master's level education it has certain levels of coursework that you need to take. You can't just have any master's degree and then go be therapist. It wouldn't make any sense to have a master's degree in civil engineering and then go do counseling. You wouldn't know anything, and you probably hurt some people along the way. Um, so we, we guarantee that the coursework is uh, is sufficient and that you've had sufficient contact hours, and then there's supervision that, that occurs. So it's, it's a basically a, an apprenticed industry where we have people who have been doing it for a really long time mentoring and supervising those who are new to the field and through that process everybody grows a little bit better and the board oversees those operations that's that's what the licensing board does uh, the licensing board is charged um, through statute through through state statute uh, and I'm just paraphrasing here but to protect the health safety and welfare of the public so 
the assumption is that random Joe Public, you know, uh, listeners writing in, for example, asking these very questions, doesn't know what qualifies a person to be a licensed clinician. And so the, the, the state of Nevada has decided to take that job on and say, we will give a stamp of approval to the people we think meet minimum standards, and they are then allowed to practice. Minimum standards are, are fairly high, of course, but they're, uh, they are nonetheless minimums. And uh, within a field, you'll find a wide variety of people who are more or less competent in various areas. Um, I certainly have my strengths. One of those would be adolescence, for example. And uh, somebody else might be very, very strong in, say, eating disorders, and uh, that's that's good. I want to know who those people are so that we can cross-refer and and do the best that we can, uh, ultimately with our eyeballs on being the most competent that we can in as many areas as possible. So to the, to the point about um, people giving good advice without being licensed— I would absolutely acknowledge that. People can can give great advice. I think that being an empathic human being is critical to any sort of healing that will ever occur. And uh, you can have healing conversations without having a license. I'm not going to stand in the way of that and say that, you know, the, the only people across time who have ever been able to treat and, you know, heal others are the people who have been, you know, certified by the government. That's, I mean, our profession hasn't even existed for, but, you know, 100 years. And so somehow... 40,000 years of humanity evolved to this point, and we, uh, we made it okay without licenses. Um, but the license is just a, a step that says, here's, here's some standards that have been agreed upon through government. Government is run by the people. The people have a legislature that has uh, put these laws in place. And we've all sort of agreed as a community that, that this uh, set of criteria is what is needed to get the license. But absolutely go talk to your friends, your neighbors, your bartenders, your barbers, your uh, yoga instructors, teachers, case managers. I'm looking at the list here in the in the note that was written, and um, and and yes, heal from those people. Uh, we know from research that m- as much as 30 or more percent of what creates healing is simply the relationship itself. It has nothing to to do with technique or modality or treatment orientation. It, it has to do with the human connection. So. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that that people who haven't, you know, been licensed by my board are unworthy of helping others. That's ridiculous, especially in a state like Nevada, where we're uh, <laughs> we're dead last in most uh, rankings regarding behavioral health, and um, and we're so rural. I mean, we did a three part podcast on rural mental health care and how we just can't find enough people to help. I think it would do well if we help train up some of these other folks that aren't interested in doing the full-blown graduate degree and getting a license and you know so they can be empowered to help. So thanks for the questions. I really appreciate it. I just noticed on the clock we're going a little long. I know we, I said we'd talk about anxiety, but I'm going to table this anxiety question and just tackle it in its own episode altogether. So thank you for joining. And if you have questions, again, info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. If you want to line up to throw rotten eggs at what I have to say, I, um, I'm i in Reno and I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, please please don't bring rotten eggs. But um, I, I have no problem articulating any of what I you know tried to say in here. I also have no problem uh, backpedaling and changing my mind if other people present countering viewpoints. Uh, I think that's what helps people in my profession grow. I think that's what helps my clients grow. I think that's what uh, is designed for uh, most human beings is to accept uh, new information all the time in a constant growth process. So 
Thanks for listening. This is uh, another episode of Listener Mail and the Naga Notes podcast, and we hope to see you. Well, I'm not going to see you, but I'll, maybe you'll hear me uh, again in the future. Have a great afternoon or evening or morning or wherever it is that you are, and I'll tune back in next time. We wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.